Hello, and welcome to Foreign Affairs Inbox, the entirely student-run and student-produced podcast of the Elliott School of International Affairs at the George Washington University. We're your producers and hosts, Taylor Galgano and Emma Anderson, two seniors presenting you with a journalism and international affairs collab on the latest trending global matters. This season's theme is peace, conflict, and protests. By the end of each episode, you will understand the issue at hand, no matter how complex. Prepare to hear from us and different Elliott School faculty to help with our own expert analysis. Want to hear us chat about a topic you're interested in? Slide into our DMs at Elliott School GW on Twitter or Instagram. Today we are joined by Dr. Ron Waldman, a professor at the Milken School of Public Health with appointments at the Elliott School. He specializes in infectious disease, humanitarian health operations, and global health development. He has extensive experience working in global health crises, working for the World Health Organization, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and USAID. He has on-the-ground experience in Bangladesh, Somalia, Cote d'Ivoire, the Balkans, Indonesia, Haiti, and Pakistan. He received his Doctor of Medicine from the University of Geneva and his Master's of Public Health from Johns Hopkins. Thank you so much for being here, Professor. You're very welcome, and thanks a lot for having me on your show. On January 30th, the World Health Organization declared a global health emergency over the novel coronavirus. There have been more than 17,000 confirmed cases of the virus in China, and more than 56 million people have been quarantined. The death toll has reached beyond 360, all but one occurring within China. The one was in the Philippines. There are at least 170 cases of the virus in over 20 other countries, including the United States, where the count is up to 11. There are several known strains of the coronavirus, and all are passed from animals to humans. The novel coronavirus that the world is seeing today has never before been detected in humans. Scientists are working on a vaccine, but do not predict one will be available before 2021. Airlines have canceled flights to China, and some countries have banned Chinese nationals from entering. The U.S. was the first nation to impose a travel ban on China. The World Health Organization has only ever labeled a global health emergency five other times before this. The U.S. has taken its citizens out of China, officially restricted travel to China, and will not allow foreigners who recently traveled to China into the U.S., despite the World Health Organization advising against this. What effect do you think this has on the fear in the U.S. about the coronavirus? I think it can probably raise the level of fear, but I think that there's some increasing talk amongst experts that the restrictions on travel that have been imposed both in China and on travel from China, maybe they are slowing down the spread of the virus some because although the number of cases is increasing dramatically, the global spread of the disease is still somewhat in check, happening, but more slowly than might have otherwise been anticipated. So you think it actually then was helpful in some regard? I think it's too soon to tell. It's too soon to as tell. As is the case with many of the questions that are being asked about the virus itself mm-hmm. and about the disease. I think it's, it's hard for anyone, myself and colleagues of mine, to sit and talk to press or students or other colleagues and say, we don't know because we're supposed to know. But the fact is there's a lot we don't know yet. Right. And then just following up on that, sort of a similar question, the head of the World Health Organization said that basically travel restrictions can actually cause more harm than good because they hinder info sharing, medical supply chains, and they harm economies. Do you agree with this? Is this true? If so, why did the U.S. just implement this travel restriction? I think they can. 
I think they probably can do more harm than good, but we don't know if they can do good. Traditionally, they have not. Traditionally, these kinds of measures, when they've been instituted, have not been effective at all, especially not for diseases that are transmitted by the respiratory route, as this one is. But this is a traditional, very frequently used measure of intervention. It seems to be what many people call for. It seems to be what politicians understand they can do and should do. Although, I think in the scientific community, we feel that this is probably not the best thing to do. But I also think that we need to come to grips with the fact that it is what's done. So right. just to say, don't do it, that doesn't work either. So yeah. we need to understand the world that we live in and try to understand that different people have different responses. I think as a responsible scientist, we need to deal with the facts as they are on the ground. Yeah, I think your point about it being sort of a political move and that it's at least something for people to see that, oh, well, our president did this, I think is very interesting. Mm -hmm, I agree. Over the weekend, Trump said the U.S. has provided China with, quote, tremendous help, whereas many different Chinese spokespeople have said otherwise. What truth does Trump's statement hold? Some. I really don't know what the word tremendous means. We hear it a lot. For a very long time, there's been very important scientific collaboration between U.S. scientists and Chinese scientists, increasingly because China has become more and more open about what they're doing, and they've vastly increases the amount of resources that they devote to public health and to science. I'm not saying they're at the same level or that everything's fine, but certainly uh, there's centers for disease control a center for disease control in China, just as we have one here. It's modeled on the U.S. CDC, and there's been an exchange of personnel and resources and skills transfer and knowledge going on for quite some time. That hasn't stopped, and now we know that the Secretary of Health and Human Services has offered to send additional personnel to China. The Chinese government, my understanding, has accepted that offer as long as they come in through the World Health Organization. The next thing we sort of want to touch on is there's been an issue of widespread misinformation regarding the coronavirus. And many social media companies are working hard to try to prevent this from continuing further. Can you talk a little bit about some of the popular misinformation that we're seeing online? It's crazy. We've never had these circumstances where information can flow freely and anybody has the right now to say what they want. We're all part of the internet. We're all part of the communications atmosphere, if you will. So some of the things that we hear going around, initially the first one was probably that snakes were responsible for the transmission of disease. I don't know how that started, but it seems to have taken off. And let me say as well that there are people who one might consider to be credible scientists who contribute to this spread of misinformation as well. Really? Yeah, people like to see their names, you know, in print or be quoted or gather more Twitter followers or, mm. you know, that's been a big one. There's been a lot of talk that is not entirely clear yet about whether or not this virus can be transmitted prior to the onset of symptoms in an individual. I'm not going to put that in the rumor category. It's an important element of the disease that needs to be clarified. Mm -hmm. Right. I noticed even with my own friends that we seem to disagree completely on how the disease even spreads from person to person, that most people think that it has to be through saliva, whereas I read online that it's just like touch and through like your hands and nose or whatever. So there's a 
elements of truth in both. It is transmitted via the respiratory route, which means that the virus is excreted from the body in saliva, micro droplets, we call them, from mm -hmm. coughs. But where do those droplets land? They can land directly on you, but they can also land on this table that we're sitting at here. And the virus can probably persist for some time. Right. On the, so mm -hmm. then somebody else comes along and they touch this, and then they touch their faces, they're, the desk's just an intermediary. We call it a fomite. So that's again, among the many things we don't know yet about this virus. We don't know how long the virus can persist on surfaces like tables, doorknobs, clothes, other fomites, as they're called. Mm. Interesting. I have a possible follow-up. I don't know if this is interesting or not. So how does this coronavirus differ from other strands of coronavirus that have come up in other areas of the world? And why is this one so difficult to find a vaccine for? So... There are many, many different strains of coronavirus. Some of them cause the common cold, what we know as the common cold. And they range from viruses that cause very mild symptoms to viruses that cause more severe systems to some viruses that cause a broad range of symptoms. So some of the ones that are more scary are the virus that was responsible for SARS mm -hmm. in 2004. And that spread around the world, very similar in transmission dynamics, apparently, to this novel coronavirus. And the virus that causes a disease called Middle Eastern Respiratory Virus or Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome that has its origin probably in camels and people contract it from camels. And so that's an extraordinarily important point that needs to be made in these conversations. This is an animal virus in its origin. Almost all of these kinds of viruses have their origins in animal. And we need to do a lot to strengthen veterinary public health, the ability to see what's happening in the animal kingdom before its diseases spill over and cross the species barrier to humans. The reason why we don't have a vaccine for this virus is that it's a novel virus. We've never yeah. seen it before. Right. So it's on day zero of the detection that vaccine development can begin. Mm -hmm. Vaccine development's a long process. It'll take up to a year from that day zero until the time that clinical trials can be done in humans. And that says nothing about distribution. On the international relations side, I guarantee you that the wealthier countries of the world have already entered into contractual arrangements with vaccine manufacturers, and they will get mm the first lots of vaccine that come off the assembly line. But this outbreak will be over by the time a vaccine can be of any use. So switching gears a little bit, in South Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, and Vietnam, restaurants are supposedly refusing Chinese customers. There was also recently a march in Indonesia asking the Chinese residents staying at a hotel to leave. Many headlines across the globe are accused of racist undertones, as Chinese individuals are experiencing racism worldwide. Do you think this anti-Chinese attitude comes from ignorance about the coronavirus, or does it have anything to do with Beijing's new power and China's ultimate rise in the global order? Ignorance. All racism is based in ignorance. And I think this is a really dangerous aspect of this disease right now. And although you mentioned Japan, Korea, and other Asian countries, there's plenty of racism occurring in this country as well. Oh, and sure. some of it is occurring on college campuses. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that as a student podcast, 
that you make it clear to your audience that this is not a time for putting stigma on any students, no matter of their ethnic origin, no matter of their travel histories or whatever. But these viruses don't distinguish. They don't happen on the basis of race or ethnicity or religion or political points of view or anything. We're all vulnerable. I've had people ask me, why do all of these diseases start in China? They don't all start in China. Certainly Ebola has nothing to do with China. And it also was accompanied by a tremendous rise in stigmatization and prejudice towards people of African origin. The 2009 pandemic of influenza began on the U.S.-Mexico border. And I guarantee you that we would not have been happy if a lot of stigmatization had been directed towards American citizens in Southern California who were among the first affected by that virus. Come full circle, I think that the answer to your question is ignorance. Right. I think that was really well said. Thank you. So increased globalization resulting in China becoming a global superpower has impacted the spread of the disease as the global economy becomes more and more reliant on China. China is also home to one of the largest patterns of human migration every year, the Lunar New Year, and is one of the most popular flight destinations in the world. How have these demographic and economic changes centered on China impacted the spread of not only coronavirus, but other infectious diseases like SARS that all originated in China? I'm really glad you bring that up. So first of all, you're right to talk about demographic changes, but the most important maybe is overpopulation. That's happening everywhere. With overpopulation, we get a lot of incursion of humans into the animal habitat. So we know how quickly forests are being cut down. We know how people are expanding into areas where they didn't use, and this is increasing their contact with microorganisms that had infected animals previously, leading to this phenomenon of spillover that I mentioned earlier, and the ability of these viruses to cross the species barrier. I haven't mentioned HIV AIDS yet as an example, another example of a modern pandemic where the virus has its origins in the animal kingdom. Our human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, is a derivative of the simian immunodeficiency virus, a virus that caused disease in chimpanzees and other non-human primates. So that's one thing. The growth of the Chinese economy has been accompanied by an explosion in the appetite for animal protein. So people whose diet consisted mainly of rice and other plant-based items now have developed an appetite for animal-based protein, but also the ability to purchase those more expensive forms of food. Mm. I think there's something like 14 billion chickens in China. There are pigs, there are cows, a lot of other domestic animals. And this, again, creates the opportunity for the virus to jump from animal species to human beings. Therefore, the concern about the fact that the first cases of the novel coronavirus were reported to be associated with what's called a wet market, a live animal market in Wuhan. Interesting. So how has this impacted the international community's approach towards China and its citizens? I think it's too soon to say again, but what I can say is that it's really important to understand that this is not only a health matter. 
so that I look at tweets and there are a number of articles that have been published already because the scientific press is being very open about communicating. So uh, we, we hear about calls for vaccine development that we've discussed, drug development, and a lot of other things that remain in the health sector, so to speak. But this is not a health problem. This is a whole of society problem. So we've talked about travel bans. That's a huge impact on the travel industry. They're going to take a serious hit. Mm -hmm. both in China and around the world. In Hong Kong, banks have been closed, so people don't have access to money. ATMs are not operational because nobody's filling them up. So that's a hit on the economic sector. I can go right down the list of every ministry in a low- and middle-income country, and there will be an impact right down the line. It has a huge impact on civil defense mm -hmm. and on defense in the form of military and it will impact the U.S.'s military capacity as well if the virus finds its way onto military bases, of which there are several in that part of the world that's right. most affected. That's really interesting about the like, sort of totality of the impacts of the, yeah, of the disease. Yeah. Whole of society. Mm -hmm. What is the role of international organizations like the World Health Organization and the World Bank, who have all made strong statements about the virus at controlling and addressing global health crises? How can these agencies strike a balance between appropriately responding to international issues while not creating hysteria? Well, they can do that by communicating clearly and effectively with people. And the one word that is absolutely essential if we're going to bring this current problem to a rapid halt is trust. The more there is trust in institutions, the more those institutions can exercise their weight. They do have expertise, both health expertise and the World Health Organization, but they have convening power. They can bring countries together. They can develop an atmosphere of cooperation and solidarity. And they need to reach out even to beyond governments and even more importantly to the people who are being most effective. But we're living in an era now where it's clear that the level of trust in our institutions is at a low point. I'm not saying the lowest ever, but certainly low. You can see it in the issue of vaccine hesitancy, for example. The CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, can make recommendations regarding vaccination. People ignore them. People can object to them. People can say, we don't believe you, and they don't. So it's really important, not only for the international organizations, usually under the rubric of the United Nations, such as the World Health Organization and the World Bank, they really need to be able to assert authority in a way that maintains respect and that engenders increased trust from their member states and even more importantly from the people who make up those member states. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really interesting discussion. I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, thank you. And hopefully we'll get this out soon so that way we can sort of spread some truth to our student body at GW. You're very welcome. And thanks a lot for having me on your show. So I thought it was super interesting when the professor was talking about how the biggest thing that these international institutions like the World Health Organization and the World Bank can do is be truthful and truthfully communicate information to the public. Mm -hmm. And that the biggest thing that these international institutions need to improve upon is the human population of the world trusting them. Yeah. 
And I thought it was very interesting because I feel like that is definitely easier said than done. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, very difficult for individuals to trust these scientifically backed organizations today when so many world leaders, including our own in the United States, sometimes actually often disagree with the information that these institutions are putting out into mm -hmm. the world. I don't know. Do you agree with me? And yeah. And like he said, like trust in institutions is at a, like a very, not an all time low, but at a super low. And I think that has to do with a lot of different, like activist movements happening around the world. For example, like there was just a huge protest at the world bank yesterday. And so many people and places are really distrusting of the United Nations and of like umbrella agencies because of its like general failures. And I think that there's a push for a more widespread knowledge of what's really going on sort of behind closed doors. But international institutions play a large role in the global order and it's hard to ignore their impact. Yeah, I completely agree. As you said, they play a huge part in the global order. And I think for them to be able to do their job, especially not even speaking in terms of the UN, but speaking in terms of just scientific agencies, mm -hmm. like for them to be able to do their job and to like relay information to people, there has to be trust. And without that, like the information and the research that they do becomes almost pointless, which mm -hmm. is somewhat scary. Going on, switching topics a little bit, but still related, is then what comes along with this is the spread of misinformation. Right. And I think that with the novel coronavirus, we've just seen such a huge spread of different info that I personally, when researching the virus, had no idea what to believe. Mm -hmm. I seem to collect different information than most of my friends here at GW that I was talking to, which is very scary because like there should be a uniform set of facts on something so widespread and something causing such hysteria but there isn't i think it's a lot easier to follow like your favorite news outlet than it is to follow something like the cdc just saying that there is a massive spread of misinformation that all have not all but a lot have racist undertones which is a pattern repeated around the world like we saw this with the hiv aids epidemic when gay men were persecuted in a similar fashion. It is coming from obviously some news outlets, but I think a lot of the misinformation is coming from us posting on Facebook and social media, like Twitter, TikTok even, like mm -hmm. Instagram, about what we think is the case with the coronavirus and our fears about the coronavirus that end up not really being backed up by any truth. Right. Instead, it comes from a place of fear in America. I mean, President Trump issued a travel ban with us in China, which creates fear in a country. It does. And causes people to sort of post their own thoughts about it on social media. But I think the other thing that we should touch on very quickly is what the professor talked about and what you just started talking about in terms of discrimination mm -hmm. as it's related to the coronavirus. Yeah, I think that something that's really interesting that we were discussing when we were researching this episode was propaganda that comes from both the U.S. and China regarding each other and sort of like the either distrust in China or the distrust in the U.S. that comes from both sides. Right. And how like most people in the U.S. are really distrustful of anything the Chinese government does. Back to the sort of issue of racism as it comes, I think that what the professor said was very accurate, that all racism comes from ignorance mm -hmm. and that especially in this case where the disease did originate in Wuhan, it has become a thing where people believe that Chinese people are more likely to carry it, which as the professor said is not true and everyone is just as susceptible mm -hmm. to the disease as anyone else mm -hmm. and I think that's a common misconception that I've seen on social media mm -hmm. that is not true and I'm glad that we were able to talk about that and right. fit that into our podcast like what you've heard 
Don't forget to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, link your friends. I'm Emma Anderson. And I'm Taylor Galgano. And thank you for tuning into this episode.